0: Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night. And I'm pleased to welcome back my guests, author and film historian Dwayne Epstein, whose book, Lee Marvin Point Blank, is a brilliant tribute to one of America's manliest actors and screenwriter, film historian, documentarian, Steve Mitchell, the filmmaker behind King Cohen, the seminal documentary on legendary maverick filmmaker, Larry Cohen. Tonight, our subject is a seminal one, the great World War II action film, The Dirty Dozen. The testosterone will be flying tonight, so look (laughs) out. Hi, Dwayne. Hi, Steve. Hi, Steve Steve Rubin.
1: Hi, Steve Mitchell.
2: Hey, guys, good to be here and talk about, uh, I guess, one of our mutual perennial titles.
0: Well, it's funny because we're coming up on Memorial Day weekend here, and invariably, one of the channels is going to run the Dirty Dozen, and uh, I mentioned testosterone earlier. One of my complaints about cinema today, and I know I don't know if I'm entirely correct, but the level of testosterone, at least in mainstream cinema, and I know we have the superhero movies, is kind of low octane. What do you guys think? Dwayne, Duane, why don't you jump in on this one?
1: Okay, well, I'm glad you mentioned that because, to my mind, testosterone has never really been a matter of, of whether somebody has superpowers or not, whether somebody is more, more uh, feminine versus masculine, whatever. Having written about Lee Marvin and and written about other actors of that generation and that ilk, one of the things about somebody like Lee Marvin, Robert Mitchum, John Wayne, and others is the fact that they came to where they came to much later in life. They were not 20-somethings or teenagers. Um, They were were grown men. And as Marvin was often uh, quoted as saying in interviews, he would say, You know, a man doesn't really reach his manhood until he's 40. That's when he knows what his smell is, which is is the way Marvin would put it. He had a way of saying things. And I have a tendency to agree with that logic in that you got to have a certain amount of life experience in order to portray it better on screen. And I just don't really see that in cinema anymore, or at least nowadays, anyway. Not that much. That's my take.
0: How do you feel about it, Steve? Well- I agree with Dwayne.
2: I I think the thing that has struck me, and it's kind of a recent thing, is that a lot of the stars that the three of us grew up with and admired and enjoyed watching uh, had two things going for them. One, uh, they were part of the greatest generation, and they have been through things like, obviously, the Depression. They'd been through the war, Lee Marvin especially, because he served in the Pacific and was wounded in the Pacific. But what they brought was a lot of real life. It wasn't film school. It wasn't acting school. Absolutely. It was the school of hard knocks. And I think Marvin, who, based on what I read in your book, Duane, you know, got the acting bug fairly early, uh, he did get schooled in the ways of the real world. And when these guys show up in front of a camera, especially in front of a lens, lens is like truth serum. It's a truth teller. Yeah. And the authenticity of these people. I mean, Charles Bronson grew up in a coal mining town. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, none of these guys looked like they showed up because they said, well, my vanity will be served by this picture. And in point of fact, uh, I read a piece of trivia where Aldrich wanted the, the cast to all have uh, either crew cuts or really short military haircuts. And this is was especially a big deal in the '60s because everybody was starting to wear their hair longer. Uh, and there's this great line that Aldrich said, "Well, they either needed to come in with their haircut correctly, or else call their lawyers." Right. So, <laughs> what they were—they were—you know, Aldrich was going for authenticity as well in terms of the look. But these guys were men. I mean, it's it's almost comical because we live in a universe where men are looked at with toxic masculinity. But these are guys that as boys and other men, I mean, my dad was a a veteran and he loved this movie. He loved these guys. He loved these men who he could relate to, you know, and so authenticity, the greatest generation, all of that stuff, I think, had a deep impact, as you said, Dwayne, on the forming of these movie stars. You know, they I I mean, all I can tell you is this. There's certain stars. I won't use their name but you know they're in certain contemporary action movies and they're supposed to be action heroes or at least people who know how to use firearms and i go i don't believe it for a second and as you both know Lee Marvin, when it came to handling firearms, was arguably the best actor in Hollywood. Steve McQueen, a close second. But Lee also knew firearms so well, he served as as a technical advisor in some of the war movies he was on. And there was this uh, Eight Iron Men, which was a picture he did at Columbia early in the 50s, where they had a German MG 42. I think I got,
1: wait a minute, wait a minute, minute. I'm sorry, I got to cut in here. Mr. Mitchell, you've got to stop stealing my stories. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well i
2: you know something i will now defer to you on that but uh, no, the, I, the reason I, I bring it up the reason <laughs> I where I, you were going, yeah right. the reason i bring it up is like not only did he know how to handle american weapons he knew how to handle german weapons and he basically was responsible for keeping the mg42 in, in working order in the picture and again i read that in your book and i said well of course he did <laughs> I wasn't bit surprised.
0: But guys, Lee Marvin was a Marine
1: on Saipan. What does he know from mg 42s He knew he, firearms. It's called, and, and it's also called basic training. Uh, you know, there's a thing about that. You got to, you know, everything that you said, Steve Mitchell, I, I agree with, but I would add probably one more thing in, in, in that. Yes, the, the, the men of the greatest generation who were film stars brought it to their work. Um, but I would add one more thing. I don't know about that many um, contemporary film stars, male action film stars, in terms of their their training, for lack of a better term. And by training, I mean acting training. It's it's one thing to have talent. It's something else to be schooled in the way to utilize that talent. Now, I know for a fact, even though he's not that much of a big star anymore, I know for a fact Schwarzenegger had absolutely no training whatsoever. He was a weightlifter. Uh, Steven Seagal was a martial artist. Jean-Claude Van Damme was, I I believe, a male model. These guys had no training at all. All the actors of the greatest generation, okay? There's not a a single one of them who ever did a screen test, but before that screen test, they went to acting school. They trod the boards. They did stage work, you name it. And that includes Charles Bronson. He trained at the Pasadena Playhouse. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, Lee Marvin went, went to the American Theater Wing, which was set up after the war On the gi bill to help train men to become actors and a lot of them did i mean and to me that's i don't know you know it's like any other job i remember who was it dave grohl of foo fighters who said he hates these reality shows in which you can become a big superstar if you compete on a freaking game show no that's not how you become a star what you do is you play bar bands You you work you practice you got to get the work in before you can get to that stage, and I don't really see that anymore. Of course, but not not that much.
2: I agree with that. But the other thing that that our heroes had going for them was they came up through the ranks.
1: Yep, they certainly did.
2: None of these guys started out as full-blown movie stars. They grew. Well, well,
1: some did. Burt Lancaster did well okay he was a lead i just have to throw that out
2: there that's okay i'm not saying listen everything everything is always you know there's always an exception to the rule Mm -hmm. but marvin started in second level parts so did bronson so did i mean even john wayne was doing you know b westerns before before stagecoach
1: Mm -hmm. you
2: know robert mitchum had a small part in gung-ho
1: he had a, his, his film debut was at the bad guy in a Hopalong Cassidy short.
2: Yeah. So all of these guys, you know, they, they, they were, they did they the were, grunt work. They did the grunt work, but they were also schooled. Um, they had practical experience, but they weren't thrown in front of the camera and said, all right, you're the star. That's
1: right. And and by I, the way,
2: think, I think that has value because it's about learning your craft.
1: Absolutely right. Absolutely right. When I mentioned Burt Lancaster, it should be said Lancaster was in special services during World War II, and after the war, he did a lot of different odd jobs, mostly as an acrobat, and then he got a part in a play called A Sound of Hunting, and that play didn't last very long, but it got him a contract with Harold Hecht, and they started their own film company, and he went from there. That play, A Sound of Hunting, was later turned into a movie that Steve Mitchell mentioned in the beginning here, called Eight Iron Men.
0: Interesting. Now, the one thing that I I find interesting about the fact that a lot of our actors of the 60s were World War II veterans. And of course in the Dirty Dozen, I think five, and, five or six of the actors were World War II veterans. Why do you guys think, given the, the, the gravitas and experience that the war gave these people, why do you think the Vietnam War did not have a similar impact on actors? Because I don't, I don't know if, I can't think of any actors who were Vietnam War veterans who came, uh, you know, came to acting of
1: any note? Can you? Well, probably. I, I don't know if this would count, mainly because he was a consultant and advisor. But he did have roles in movies. Would be uh, Dale Die. Does that count?
0: Well, Dale Die, I think more of as an advisor and a yeah, technical technical guy. I mean, Oliver Stone obviously got a lot of uh, you know things things for his directing and writing, but. You know, it's I'm always pointing out to the fact that uh, this generation of actors born out of World War II, and who, in many cases, fought or served, became the core of our high testosterone actors of the 50s and 60s. Well,
2: um, there's, but- a, there's another thing I just want to throw on the table is the people that used to go to the movies were adults and adults liked watching other adults. In fact, one of the things that's fascinating to me now, if you watch, let's say you're watching a Thin Man movie, you know, which are, those are always a lot of fun. Right. Look at all the supporting characters. There are not oh, no young God. people in those pictures. Right. Um, when, you, when you watch movies from the major studios, for the most part, unless the story was really skewed young, you always had people who all looked too old in it because adults wanted, wanted to watch adults. They trusted that. In fact, movie, you know, we're getting way off topic here, but just as a sidebar, you know, that's, that's how AIP made its fortune, because, how you know, those two guys realized, wait a second, teenagers are not being served in the movies, right. for the most yeah. part.
1: And 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 they have a lot of spending cash. So yes, let's they do. That. I'm going to bring it back to the subject by telling you this. Please. One of the, because uh, I agree with what Steve Mitchell just said, and also what Steve Rubin alluded to about the thing about the Vietnam War. Um, let's face it. It's not a matter of what you thought of the Vietnam War, the fact of the matter is it was a very unpopular war and at least became one. Robert Aldrich was on record in almost every interview he did to promote the Dirty Dozen that he realized they got extremely lucky in terms of its popularity because it was that rare film that because it was perceived, although it wasn't, it was perceived as anti-authoritative in terms of the way the military officers were portrayed, and and they were and the main characters were all criminals and, and, and nonconformists and what have you. They they hit this raw lucky nerve at the time the film came out, in which both young people who were facing the Vietnam War or, or, or about to be in the or in the Vietnam War, and older people who had fought the war or had experienced the war. So there was this rare lucky. Uh um perfect storm in terms of the audience loving it. Now, don't get me wrong, a lot of critics didn't like it either. It was a very controversial film for practically the same reason, but that made the dirty dozen the hit that it was at the time it was released. And Aldridge has also said you'd have to be a fool to think we planned that. There's no way to plan that. The you know, the escalation of the war and you know, the uh the Gulf of Tonkin and all the stuff that took place at the time that the film came out wound up being the best thing to happen to MGM. But over time, once that was established, it kind of grew a life of its own. The film just kept getting re-released, getting uh, shown. After, that's what I, I saw it on the big screen for the first time about 10 to 15 years after it came out at uh, a revival theater. And it was shown on TV constantly. It's just, It became the classic that wouldn't die because it wound up becoming something different to every generation, but the main, point of it, the main theme of it, that never went away and that's why ask, we're talking about it tonight. Now Let me
0: ask a question. Um, uh, this to me is one of the ultimate ensemble pictures and because it's Aldrich, every character pops. You know, there Definitely. are no, there are no, uh, you know, kind of um, undeveloped characters in the sense that, at least the main, main characters, I'd say seven or eight of the Dirty Dozen really are so memorable. Um, The concept of the ensemble action movie, uh, for lack of a better term, the war caper movie, I I guess you've got to go back to films like um, The Guns of Navarone in 61, six years earlier, you go to back to The Great Escape in 63. The Men on a Mission movie. Uh, The Men on a Mission movie, thank you. Uh, Can you go back further than that? Is this an old genre that works? You know, it's funny, you should mention Burt Lancaster, an early, early uh, work of his. One of his first movies was a movie called Brute Force. Oh, what even a movie. Though, a great movie, even though it's not really a war movie at all. It's a prison movie. Right. But it's an ensemble movie with a bunch of different actors involved and in a breakout, kind of, you know, on a small scale, like The Great Escape. Um, how much do you think Aldrich and MGM were influenced by the success of these earlier ensemble movies?
1: Oh, a great deal, especially based on the screenplay. Aldridge, once again, famously was, uh, he was the one who brought in Lucas Heller to uh, readapt the screenplay that was written and accepted that um, um, uh, Nunnally Johnson wrote. Now, Nunnally Johnson is a world-famous screenwriter, historically legendary screenwriter, Uh, great musical comedies and comedies and also the Grapes of Wrath and just, a plethora of wonderful films. When Ken Hyman, the producer, was the one who hired Natalie Johnson to do the adaption of the novel by Ian Nathanson, Aldridge came on board after that. When Aldridge read the screenplay, he famously said, this screenplay would be great for a 1945 World War II movie. Unfortunately, we're not making that movie. We're making a movie about World War II for 1967, and we have to make some serious changes here. And that's why he brought in Lucas Heller. Who from what I understand for the most part really didn't rewrite so much as he edited and cut it more and brought it down to a certain uh uh more what story I'm looking for not malleable but but he, he cut out a lot of side stories and a lot of different um, um um ironies that were in the original novel that Nathanson wrote and some other things as well and he brought he just brought it down to its most purest form and that's what they went with. And that, as I said, is what made it more of a 1967
2: film. Well, also Aldrich was a provocateur. You bet he was. Aldrich was not interested in just making a war movie or a war adventure movie. Mm-hmm. And another one of those movies, you could call, you could say, Von Ryan's Express Yep. is kind of a, a, a men's war adventure picture. You know, these are, these are movies that were not in the foxholes uh, guys were, you know, it wasn't like Band of Brothers or the Pacific, you know, for contemporary context. Right. Um, but I think the Aldrich had, I think the, the secret weapon for that picture for the Dirty Dozen was, I think, the secret weapon for all really good movies. And that's character, 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 the three most I, important yeah. things that they have in
1: films today. Yeah, the movie well, that, is, is, I, I, is, I agree with that. I do. But I, you know, it's not just character, it's story. Anybody worked their self who loves movies of any kind and what they like best about a movie, the cinematography, the music, the cutting, whatever, it always has to come down to you got to have a story to work with. And I, the Dirty Dozen is also, in many ways, one of the most original film stories ever put on film. Certainly Even an original war before. picture,
2: but I, I got to just, I got to defend my point a little bit okay. more. And that is that when you think of that picture and you think all of the great lines of dialogue uh-huh. and then delivered by that cast, which was the other secret weapon, right. that it becomes irresistible. And again, we live in the era of the toxic male, but let me tell you something, that uh, there are these guys who wrote this great film book called uh, The Manly Movie Guide. Uh, not only a great film book, it's also hilariously funny. And I heard an anecdote, two writers used to have sort of a kind of a film club back at back east with a bunch of their friends. And they had, all right, who is the manliest movie actor of them all?
1: Oh, please don't say Chuck Norris, please. No,
2: no, no. I'm going to make you happy, Dwayne Epstein.
1: Oh, okay. Lee
2: Marvin. And (laughs) that was, he felt he. Okay, that made me happy.
1: You're right. So manly,
2: (laughs) he never had to prove it. And, and and the proof is literally in the dirty dozen, because you say, none of these guys can give Reisman shit, because Reisman is Lee Marvin. That, of course, he's the guy who's taking those guys into France. Of course, he's the guy who's doing this job, because he's Lee Marvin. Right. And movie stars like Lee Marvin in the right part, also like in The Professionals, mm-hmm. uh, you don't have to write it. They just are it they be it um you know there's a great line of the professionals where burt lancaster and professionals is a favorite movie of mine and steve rubens and uh, mine as well of course of course, of course of <laughs> course and you know burt says to lee marvin he says my word is it worth a plug nickel to mr joe grant or close enough and then Lee goes, you gave goes, your
1: word to me.
2: He says, you gave your word to me because you that sold voice. it to Art Dwayne. He doesn't even sell it. And he's and he's saying that to Burt Lancaster. And you go, yeah, okay, Burt just got chastised and he right. knows <laughs> it.
1: You know, there are several great moments like that in The Professionals where Burt yes. Lancaster's character, uh, Bill Dalworth, he's just as tough as Lee Marvin is. But because he knows he's second in command and Marvin is in charge, he has to back down a lot. That's one moment. Another moment is when Robert Ryan convinces Lee Marvin not to shoot the horses and when he says, all right, let him go. And you see the look on Lancaster's face. He just stares at Marvin like, are you fucking kidding me? But he doesn't say anything. He knows Marvin is in charge. There's a, and there's that's a, his job. There's
0: a great moment early in the Dirty Dozen where they're the, in the, the credit sequence where they're introducing all the actors. Oh, I love and that. They, and they have, and of course, Franco, the John Cassavetes character is not acting very cooperative. And and Lee Marvin is smiling and says, come over here. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> so yeah. He said, what is the essence he says? He
1: says, you better do it. I'm going to beat the living hell out of you. He goes, he says it, he says it with a slight smirk. He goes, look, you little bastard, either you march or I'll beat your brains out. <laughs> and and as it, only it, he
2: can say it that's right
1: <laughs> and by the way i have to tell you the first couple of times i saw the dirty dozen and i'm not one of those schmucks who sits there and goes oh i've seen this movie 127 times i don't care how many times i've seen a movie if i like it i'm gonna watch it period i don't count i think that's stupid that's an aside no matter how many the first couple of times i've seen the dirty dozen john caservetti as franco was my favorite character i absolutely loved him because when not to the extreme where I was a murderer or a convict or anything like that but when I was a teenager I had the same attitude. I, I couldn't stand authority. I always tried to figure out a way in order to cause trouble or in you know basically in school and you know class clown and all that stupid shit that goes along with it but the, he was the first character I ever saw in the movie that you could just see on his face no matter what happens before anything happened just by looking at that smirk of his, you knew he was going to cause havoc you just knew it. And well, this is even big... when there's nothing going on, it, when when there's a shot from uh the Camarango, like from the hillside, and they're all lined up, and you hear Richard Jake will go, Franco, put out that cigarette. <laughs> you just whatever's going on, Franco's going to be the troublemaker <laughs> always. Well,
0: this was a big year for John Cassavetes. In addition to the Dirty Dozen, he was also in Rosemary's Baby that year, yeah. So I, sure. it, it's kind of because is an interesting actor, he, he he's he's a very powerful actor, but his his appearances in mainstream american movies quote unquote studio films was very brief he i think he started working independently almost immediately after the dirty dozen wasn't it true
1: well yes and no um he i don't know if you know the story or not but apparently he got blacklisted when he really was making one of the few mainstream films he ever made he was hired by stanley kramer to direct a movie called *The child is waiting very good poignant incredible film and while they were make while he was directing it he and Kramer butted heads a lot and I was fortunate enough to interview Stanley Kramer about a year or two before he died and he gave me the whole lowdown of what happened between them consequently after the film came out and did not do well Stanley Kramer was powerful enough in Hollywood to keep Cassavetes from working as a director if he wanted to and he did and the result was Cassavetes couldn't get himself arrested. He got, as an actor, he did get a couple of TV stints here and there. He was desperately trying to get the film off the ground that he was writing and directing and producing. It was uh, eventually Faces. And what happened was Ken Hyman approached him about making um, um, uh, The Dirty Dozen. And I I was fortunate enough, because I I haven't mentioned this yet. I'm, I'm, I'm currently writing a book about the making of The Dirty Dozen called Killing Generals. And I was lucky enough to find Ken Hyman and interview him. He's still very much around. And he told me the whole story about what went down. And what, one of the things that I love, one of the things that Cassavetes did, was that once he signed on to do the Dirty Dozen, begrudgingly, I might add, he was one of the few people involved in the cast that when they went to London and they would shoot during the day and party at night, um, Cassavetes didn't. Well, he did on occasion. But for the most part, what he did was he, brought, he had already filmed faces. It was done in terms of the, produ- uh, uh, the production of it, but the post-production was a long way off and he didn't have the money for it. So he used the money from the Dirty Dozen uh, uh, payroll that he got to take all the reels of film to London and he rented an editing room at night and he was shooting the Dirty Dozen during the day, editing faces at night. And the result was it set a pattern for his career. He would do any kind of schlock as an actor that they would hire him to do to pay for the films he wanted to make which when they talk about the so-called father of independent cinema, the pioneer of independent cinema being Cassavetes, it was the way he would get things done that made him that pioneering figure. In terms of the films themselves, not so much. Because there were great films, don't get me wrong. I love the films he directed. They're so freaking weird. But they (laughs) dealt with the problems of middle-aged, middle-class suburbanites. That's not what most independent films are about. He, he made films about what he wanted to make films about, like, you know, Minnie and Moskowitz, and Husbands, and Killing of a Chinese Bookie, and a lot of great film. And it started, well, it started with a movie called Shadows, which he did before A Child Was Waiting, but it was his sensibility. He, you know, basically stating that you make a movie about what you know, and this is what he knew from his own experience. Uh, um, oh, I'm thinking of the other one with his wife and Peter Falk. Um, Husbands, a woman under the influence. Yeah, oh, no, no. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, see, you talk about masculinity of a certain generation. Okay, to my mind, John Cassavetes, both as a screen presence, as an actor, and as a filmmaker, I think he embodied the best of both worlds. He really did. I think he was a sadly underrated actor. By the way, the only acting nomination he ever got was for The Dirty Dozen, and. Um,
0: it is interesting. In, in he the... was it
1: as far as I'm concerned. He was great.
0: <laughs> it, 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 now, I, I I know you've been conducting a lot of research and speaking to Hyman. Did Hyman mention the fact that Aldrich wanted John Wayne to play Reisman?
1: Uh, oh, Steve, I think you got it backwards. Worked okay. like this. And I'm not going to give away a whole lot more, but I will tell you that um, I will talk about the uh, level of exclusivity of the book I got, which is pretty astounding. Worked like this. Ken Hyman was hired by Robert Goldberg, Bob Goldberg, I think, who was the head of MGM production at the time, to take over uh, as, as producer of the, uh, of the Dirty Dozen. They had another director-producer team, and they had a falling out. Now, when Ken Hyman took it over, he approached John Wayne. Ken Hyman did. And John Wayne <laughs> wrote this lengthy memo, and a lot of people have misunderstood what this memo meant, that they thought Because Ken Hyman had written him, asking him to read the script. Wayne read the script, and he just went off on how much he hated the script, that that the characters of the dozen were nothing more than a bunch of those same college fruits who wear sandals and long beards and aren't willing to fight for their country. And I don't want to have anything to do with a movie like that. Okay. Also, too, he didn't apparently like the ending in the script that he read, in which All the Nazis and women, uh, uh, escorts of the Nazis, were incinerated. He hated that. He thought, my fans would not want to see me incinerate innocent women. As if women who hang out with Nazis are innocent, but that's a side thing. Now, by the time Ken Hyman hired Robert Aldridge, Aldridge came on to the uh, production not very happy because he had heard that Hyman wanted John Wayne and John Wayne turned it down. And Robert Aldridge said, you're one up on me. Um, I would never have asked John Wayne to play this part. Not because I have anything against his politics. That's his mother's problem. He's just not right for this role. I think we ought to talk to Lee Marvin. He would be best. And that's how it went down.
0: Well, it seems to me that if you and I and Steve thought about this for a week, there is no other actor to play Major riceman No doubt. Yeah, who needs a week? There is, you know, <laughs> boom, done. Yeah.
1: By the way, other actors of that time period were indeed considered. And I love seeing some of the casting ideas that were thrown around. Naturally, Burt Lancaster, uh, Robert Mitchum, that same. Ilk. But I don't think either one of them would have, get, like you said earlier, uh, Mr. Rubin, of the gravitas that Marvin gave it. You gotta, there's a the thing. I, There's this wonderful anecdote that Lee Marvin used to tell about the making of Deliverance, that it was a book he read when it first came out, and he loved it, and he wanted to do it desperately. Um, He wanted to play the John Boyd part, and he thought Marlon Brando would be great in the Burt Reynolds part, and he shopped it around, and he shopped it around for years, and he gave it to John Borman, and John Borman said to him, How about you and Marlon play the parts? I'll approach, you know, you're interested in it, I'll talk to Marlon. And Lee Marvin said, You know what? It's too late. Not about age, it had nothing to do with their age because they were older by then. Lee Marvin said, an actor of note brings a level of experience to the audience. They're not going to see Bobby and Lewis, the characters in the in the story. They're going to see Lee and Marlon. It's not going to work. Now, for that reason, when you watch <laughs> The Dirty Dozen, with the amount of war films he had made up to that time anyway, and, he, and the timing was magnificent for Marvin because while the movie was early in production, he won the Oscar for Cat Baloo. So they got, the producers got real lucky in that they hired Marvin on the brink of his superstardom. And everybody knew if they knew Lee Marvin at all, they knew he could handle the role. He had um, a, a, you know, a level of don't mess with me. You mess with me, you're in trouble. And Burton and didn't always have that. Neither did uh, Robert Mitchum to a certain extent. Marvin always did.
2: Well, the other thing—the other thing—is this, uh, Dwayne. I, for starters, Aldrich already had been sold on Marvin because they, you know, they worked together on Attack. Oh, absolutely! The, the absolutely. searing gut punch of a World War II picture from the fifties,
1: but a the perfect thing- precursor. To the dirty dozen, by the of way. Of
2: course. And, and the other thing is that, you know, I think Aldrich realized pretty quickly that Marvin had something that some of those other actors did not quite have. They could pull it off, but they did not quite have naturally. And that's military bearing. You bet. You know, when, Absolutely. You, see, when you see Lee in the uniform and you say Major Reisman, you go, you completely accept it. It's not even a conscious thing. It's, it's almost a chemistry thing. You go, well, of course. It's almost like today, when you see a certain actor play a superhero, I have this little test, which is the yes, no test. When you see him in their costume for the first time, you go yes or no. Mm -hmm. Well, Marvin passed that test before the test even existed. And again, it goes back to that thing about authenticity creates credibility. And and I think that Marvin's military bearing uh, makes him a natural to play an officer and a leader. And his toughness makes him the right guy to to handle that group of men. Absolutely. It's look the the movie in many ways is lightning in a bottle. I think, uh, but uh, yeah, at some I point I just I'll tease this. I don't know if we want to go to it right now. But there are a number of problems I have with the movie, in spite of the fact that I love it. But we'll get Uh-oh. there. Oh,
0: <laughs> now um, uh, Dwayne, you have the advantage because neither Steve and I have read the original Nathanson novel. And one of the things I was going to ask is, there's something about the movie that has kind of a, there's a dark sense of humor in the Dirty Dozen. I mean, it's, it's 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 at times almost playful in the way the characters interact, especially during the training sequences. Oh, there's
1: a lot of black comedy in the
0: film. A lot of black comedy. Was there any black
1: comedy in the novel? Okay, it's interesting, the timing. Uh, on your part is excellent because just literally yesterday, I finished reading the original novel from cover to cover. It's over 500 pages. And I can tell you this, there's a little bit, there's there's a level of of snarkiness and sarcasm, mostly in the uh, um, attitude of uh, John Reisman, who by the way is a captain in the book, he's not a major. Uh, And I'll add this too in terms of, uh, of mentioning some of the exclusives I got for my book about the Dirty Dozen, I got extremely lucky early on in that I have a friend who's a fellow biographer who uh, had interviewed e. Nathanson, Mick Nathanson about two years before he died. And she, I had told her what my next project was and she mentioned to me that she interviewed Nathanson at length for like four hours, but it never got published would I be interested in using it? And I went, oh, Beverly, boy, would I ever. And she just gave it to me. Now, I had to transcribe it, but it is incredibly insightful. Now, I will not tell you the contents of that interview. I'm going to have you drooling. You've got to read the book. But Nathanson goes into how he, uh, where the idea came from, how he created certain sequences in the book, and what have you. And I would say the best way to describe it was the movie The Dirty Dozen was loosely based on the book, The Dirty Dogs.
0: Yeah, because apparently, and I think this is common knowledge, if you, the, the attack on the Chateau, which of course is the centerpiece of the movie, is only the last chapter of the book, correct?
1: Not only is it the last chapter, it's written as an official military report. And it's nothing like it is in the movie at all. It's very different.
0: Well, we all, I, I, we, I think... Um, We know a little bit about the fact that there was uh, a military unit in the 101st Airborne called the Filthy 13. Oh, good. good. the
1: the Filthy 15 is what they were called.
0: Okay, the Filthy 15, and they refused to shave uh, and bathe, apparently, uh, at some point, uh, got got their name that way. Um, uh, You know, I... I I can tell you well. When I saw the trailer for this movie, I mean, I was sold at the at, at the the thirteen second mark. I mean, my God, as a six, <laughs> as a fifteen year old in '67, this was this was in this was prime World War II country. Um, let's talk about some of the other people involved in this show because before the, we go any is, further,
1: no, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned the Filthy Fifteen because I, I, you know, this has to be said. One of the things I'd like to dispel with the writing of my book and the research I've been doing is the, to dispel the rumor that the Filthy 15 had anything to do with the Dirty Dozen. They had absolutely nothing to do with it. Nathanson himself is on record as stating he did not know anything about the Filthy 15 until after the book was published. So there's no connection there at all. But, you know, if they want, if, if people want to think that, and there have been several books that were written making that... Analogous uh, uh, um, connection as if it was ba- uh, the, the Dirty Dozen was based on the Filthy 15. Believe me when I tell you, it was not any more than Cat and Kangaroo saved Lee Marvin in World War II. That, it's just a wonderful urban legend. And now, the best story of all, and I'll tell you at least this much, I won't go into detail about it, where Nathanson got the idea for the Dirty Dozen. From the most unlikely of sources, and I love this. It came from the king and pioneer of big-breasted sexploitation films, Russ Meyer. (laughs) Isn't that great? Russ Meyer was a friend and neighbor of E.M. Nathanson, Mick Nathanson, and they would play poker together, they'd hang out, and just conversationally one night, Meyer told Nathanson, a lot of people don't know this, Russ Meyer was a combat photographer in World War II, um, and a very good one from what I understood. And he told the story about he had taken pictures of a group of men that were called the Dirty Dozen, and they were convicted criminals. And he didn't know what he was taking pictures of when he took them. And then uh, he was told at the time, it was at a prison in London, in England, excuse me. He took their pictures as part of his regular assignment. And then about a month later, he came back to ask what happened to them. And the prison guard said, they all died. They're gone, they went on a mission. And when Les Meyer tried to find out more about them, all records were sealed to him, and he was not allowed to find out anything. So then he told Nathanson about it, and Nathanson's reaction was, he said, the hackle stood up on the back of my neck. He said, this was one of the most amazing stories I'd ever heard. And he spent the next three years researching it any way he could. And he had, because he had been in the Army himself, and he had some pretty high-level clearance, he was able to get into the files and, and uh, transcripts and records and court-martials of a lot of different soldiers during World War II, and absolutely nothing. However, what he did find provided perfect research for the book he would eventually write called The Dirty Dozen. It gave him background stories for all the characters, but nobody knows if they existed at all.
0: Interesting, interesting. This is great information, Dwayne. We appreciate that. Uh, I, I, by the way, oh, in, and in some in some of the notes on IMDb, which o- often has some very interesting sidelines, I think it mentioned that the guy, and confirm this with me, the guy who puts the noose around the soldier in the opening sequence who gets hung
1: is not oh, Dick Miller. It's not Dick Miller. Well, no, I'm sorry, if, is that where you were going?
0: No, no. <laughs> I, I was I was thinking that uh, according to the IMDb point was that this was the official executioner. Of the of the British uh, the British justice justice system, who had personally hung fourteen was it fourteen thousand? Be not fourteen thousand. Must have been
1: fourteen hundred people. That might be. I that I do not know. I do know there's a lot of things on the Internet movie database about the Dirty Dozen. That's wrong. You yeah. mentioned Dick Miller as an uncredited guard in the hanging sequence in the beginning. If you know who Dick Miller is, you know, you know that guy Dick Miller. He's not in the movie at all. Dick Miller role. was
0: like a Roger Corman staple for years.
1: Oh, absolutely. And also, I don't know where, but they got this idea that Lee Marvin hated The Dirty Dozen. I have no idea how that rumor got started. He did not. He he is on record as having said he thought the premise was pretty unbelievable. That you know the, the, the military would never do anything like that, use a bunch of convicted killers as as uh, uh, trained commandos. But in terms of the film itself, he liked it.
0: He knew a good movie when he saw one (laughs) and and for the listeners information the dirty dozen was the most i think it was if not the most successful movie certainly mgm's most successful film of the year grossed 45 million dollars which in those days was insane it's like star wars numbers
1: yeah and let me tell you something as far as i know and everything i've read the only film that came second to it in the box office that year was the latest Bond film. It was either Thunderball or You Only Live Twice. You only live twice. I mean. no, no, you only live twice. No, absolutely. By and the way, that was second to The Dirty Dozen. The Dirty Dozen was the number one film of 1967.
0: By the way, just as an aside, you mentioned Russ Meyer. Um, he was also a still photographer on the original Twilight Zone series.
1: Oh, very cool. See, Steve Rubin would know that, being the uh, author of the encyclopedia. <laughs>
0: let's talk about Telly Savalas. Oh, let's. <laughs> steve, i'm gonna i'm gonna defer to steve mitchell's impression of telly because I, oh
1: I, steve, steve does a, tell, a telly impression
2: no i just i basically i do the telly savalas from uh, kelly's oh, heroes
1: oh right but, oh,
2: especially oh. when he mocks because it's so new york and i'm from new york right. but you know oh, we my, ain't got my. no we ain't no we ain't got no booze shut up
1: that's right <laughs> <You know? laughs> no well, it's what's, of my what's favorite moments in kelly's heroes is him going listen I'm going to go into town. I'm going to get some booze. I'm going to get some dirty movies. If that's all right with you, Barbara, Barbara, shut up.
2: <laughs> yeah, what, What's the other I, one that I tell I, you I, this?
1: I, I tell you this because my girlfriend's name is Barbara and I do that to her all the oh, time. Okay. Well, my,
2: my wife is named, my wife, my, my wife's name is Barbara as well. So
1: oh, well, it's not Barbara. It's, it's Barbara. Barbara. <laughs> Barbara. Shut up. <laughs> well, there's that
2: great, there's that great line. It always, it always cracks us up. Where. uh, Uh, Kelly brings uh, this uh, German officer in and and Big Joe is looking and he says what's this I asked you to get me some good-looking kid not this fat sausage chewing wino you know (laughs) pretty much pretty much setting setting up his character for the rest of the movie but but getting to Telly is in a sense people forget that before and and again this is sort of that you know you you don't start out as Kojak you have to kind of get there and Telly was this very busy character actor, second or third lead in movies. By the time he did The Dirty Dozen, I think he was getting to be better known and more popular. But, and with but other to, members of the cast as well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that, just in Telly's case, what I like about it is it's really a maybe one of the most character actor parts he's ever played. Because yep. Telly has always traded on his charisma yeah, and his right. personality. Well, Maggot, A.J., you know, uh, Archer Maggot maggot? uh, is a unique and bizarre character unto itself, and I just love the fact that Telly surrenders to
1: it. Well, let me tell you something I find fascinating about his character. In the book, he's actually three different people. There's a religious fanatic named Ezra Smith. There's a sexual uh, um, demented character named Roscoe Lever, okay? And there's a racist southerner named archer maggot and they the, the screenwriters decided to put all three characters into one guy and it was telly Savalov. i'm not quite sure how believable he was as a southerner but that's all right the other two aspects of his characters certainly come through very strongly.
2: well roscoe lever is actually one of the characters in the movie i think
1: uh well if he is he doesn't have the same characteristics
2: um, yeah he, he well he was one of those secondary uh right, one, dozen.
1: Of the, one of the ones they call the bottom dozen what right. <laughs> one, one, one of my favorite stories and pieces of research, Jim Brown, interesting man in and of itself, Jim Brown wrote his autobiography. That when the, when the movie was screened uh, in its final cut and it was in Hollywood. And the scene where Telly Savalas gets his and by the uh, uh you know the machine gun of Jim Brown, when Telly Savalas hits the ground, Savalas was sitting next to Jim Brown and he went. All right, movie's over. Maggot's dead. Who cares? And he got <laughs> up and left.
2: <laughs> but he
1: really thought he was the star of the movie.
2: <laughs> well, you know, there's a, there's a saying amongst actors, or at least amongst producers about actors, especially New York actors, that every New York actor, no matter how big or small the part, they think they're the star of the movie. And they right put right. that amount of energy into it. Sure. And just as, an, as, as a trivia aside, Stuart Cooper... Uh, played Roscoe Lever and Stuart Cooper turned out to be oh, a very director. interesting film director and he directed yeah, this Overlord. very Overlord is a fascinating movie to see and I think it's the war picture that John Cassavetes might have directed if he yeah, was going to do yeah, something I, like that.
1: I would agree with that. I would agree
2: so with that, I sure. think I suspect Stuart Cooper and Cassavetes probably spent a little time talking about uh, uh, you know their own personal POVs when it came to filmmaking.
1: Yeah, speaking uh, of Casabretti's and filmmakers, you know the actor Ben Carruthers is in the uh, the Dirty Dozen. He's one of the bottom dozen too. Right, he was the he was the star of Casabretti's uh, Shadows. Oh, no, no
0: shit! I didn't know that. Yeah, yep. Well, speaking of Jim Brown, I mean, I didn't realize that uh, Jim Brown was still playing professional football when this movie was in production, and he was supposed to report to training camp. Right, and apparently, uh, according to the research. Uh, the NFL was threatening to suspend him. And I guess this was the tipping point of Jim Brown's uh, life. And he decided to forego the NFL and retire to start a movie career, which I thought was
1: fascinating. Um, okay. Well, I can tell you this. I won't go into detail about it. That's all true. Everything is true. But it says a lot about the mainstream media in the way that story played out. Because of what? And the production company of the Dirty Dozen. Uh, played it out for all it was worth because it's a lot of great PR in that, that the number one football star in America is on the brink of maybe retiring to pursue a film career that's going to really be launched by this particular film. What studio wouldn't love a story like that, right? Back to the matter is, and I'll just say it this way, Jim Brown had every intention of retiring long before he went into production with the Dirty Dozen. However, he only told that to a, a reporter for a local Los Angeles uh, um, um, newspaper that was read only by black people. It was called the LA Sentinel. And he sat down to dinner with the writer and said, I'm gonna be retiring, there's no no two ways about it. However, most mainstream America didn't read the LA Sentinel. So when it came to making the story (laughs) true, and it was true, and about how he had a press conference uh, during the production of the film and about how, um, what's his name? The, uh, the owner of, of uh, the Cleveland Browns, Art, I just went blank on his name. He had threatened uh, Jim Brown with uh, a fine for every day he doesn't show up for practice because the movie was going overtime because of weather and other issues and all this kind of stuff. And Jim Brown was just kind of, fuck it, I've got to retire. And the sports and entertainment media went nuts. There were daily stories about it all the time. He had planned to do that all along. He just never told mainstream media that.
0: Another actor uh, who I just loved in the role and it was just kind of just fun to see his work was Clint Walker Ah, played Samson Posey I think uh, you know he's such a gentle giant in the movie, and I guess one of the controversies which I don't know if anybody's ever been able to answer it is a bit of a mystery is you see, um, and I don't, I don't feel bad about spoilers because if, you, if, you, if the listeners haven't seen the Dirty Dozen, i shouldn't, yeah, <laughs> right. shouldn't be listening. But mm-hmm. what happened to Samson Posey in the movie? Because everybody else is dealt with very directly, but you never see what happens to Posey. Do you have any clues there uh, without giving anything too away, Dwayne? Yes,
1: I do. Um, it was something that really irked the author, Mick, Mick Nathanson. He, he had said that Samson Posey was one of his favorite characters that he wrote because he did a lot of homework in the Posey character. He studied the Ute Indians. And in the, in the movie, they call him an Apache. He's not Apache. He's Ute. But he, he wrote a very elaborate scene for Posey, who, by the way, um, well, no, I'm not going to say it. I, I want people to find this out by reading the book. But that was one of the things about the way Robert Aldridge directs a movie. See... If you, he doesn't show Clint Walker's death. What he does is that um, he traded in Clint, I I got to interview Clint Walker, wonderful guy, super sweet man. Clint Walker told me he had rehearsed the rain dance that that he was supposed to do in the movie. But at the last minute, well, not so much the last minute, it was decided that because of Jim Brown's athletic prowess, they traded that rain dance for Jim Brown doing that, you know, obvious football run, tossing the grenades into the ventilators. And Clint Walker said he was very disappointed. He, uh, he rehearsed it, but he understood. Jim Brown was a, was a known entity. Now, what Aldridge did was, because they don't ever show what happens to Posey, as they're rolling the credits, and you hear George Kennedy's voiceover saying, um, they gave their lives in the line of duty. And they show a quick shot of Clint Walker amongst the other dead. That's the only signifier that we know Posey didn't make it. Okay. But they never show Posey die. You figured he died because he was poised next to Bravos in the machine gun nest with the, with, with the bomb detonators. And Bravos, you see, die. I guess Aldrin saw the cut and figured it's running too long. If Bravos died, Posey's dead and leave it at that. And that's what the audience is supposed to be. So are you, are
0: you telling us, Dwayne, that before the Germans come down the road in their vehicles, Posey's doing a rain
1: dance? He's, it's more, well, actually, in the book he does a rain dance in order to stop the rain that's coming in them to fly over to France. But the way I understood it to be done was that Aldridge had wanted Posey to do a war dance and rip off his shirt, smear himself with paint, dance around and scream and take his machine gun and just mow down germans and that never happened
0: interesting the other well, person the other person the other person of course who became another mainstay in in, in macho films of course is charles bronson uh-huh. who was uh, fresh off the great escape battle of the bulge right um magnificent seven magnificent seven mm-hmm. um just you know just love love Charles Bronson in this picture, especially when he's beset upon by
1: those big oafs sent to him by Robert Ryan. Yeah, that was right out of the book, by the way. Scene for scene, the way it was described, the dialogue, everything that was in the book. That what's, I can tell you. What's
0: really cool about this movie, and this doesn't happen much anymore, is that virtually every frame of the movie is populated by somebody who looks familiar. I mean, you've got... <laughs> right you got yeah. robert ryan playing kind of one of the villains as this uh straight as straight as an arrow air, air uh air i would
2: call him an opponent not a villain
1: okay oh well i i or you know you can call him the antagonist but i personally would call him a villain you know why one of the things that they do in the book is that they also do in the movie is you never really see any villainous nazis you don't see them doing anything villainous at all. They're just basically in the background when they get to the Chateau and they say a couple of funny things here and there, but you don't see them being Nazis. They're officers, but they're not killing Jews or murdering children or, or plowing down freckle-faced American boys, you know? The, the, real, the real villains are... Oh, I, I, I'll just make this quick. I got to interview a guy named Bob Phillips in the mid-'90s when I was working on the Lee Marvin book. Now, I didn't know this at the time, but... When I interviewed Bob Phillips, Robert Phillips, fascinating person, background, you name it, I'm in the middle of talking to him um, about 20 minutes into discussing with him because at the time he had been really good friends with Lee Marvin. I had no idea how good of a friend because as we're talking, I asked him, did you have any connection to the Dirty Dozen? And he says to me, you know, Dwayne, there were only two villains in the Dirty Dozen. One was Colonel Breed and the other, and before he could finish the sentence, I looked at him and I went, oh my God, you were Corporal Morgan, and he smiled at me. And he must've read the book, because in the book, that's exactly how it works. Morgan is a much bigger character in the book than he is in the movie. Same thing with Breed. And Morgan, Morgan, he's just, he's just in the movie, he's just one of the MPs under Richard Jekyll's command. And apparently, he Bob Phillips was hired to be what in the industry they call um, a, a bodyguard for Lee Marvin, in truth, that's, that's what they tell the mainstream media. In truth, he was really a babysitter because Marvin had a reputation for getting drunk. And if he got drunk and he got in trouble or got arrested or beat up or killed or whatever, they needed somebody there who could, who could take care of him. And that's what Bob Phillips was. The, the character of Corporal Morgan was not that big in the movie. He just had a couple of lines and it really disappointed Bob Phillips. And John, he was friends with Cassavetti's too. And Bob Phillips apparently told John Cassavetes when they were making the movie, I can't even put this on my fucking resume. This part is so small now. And Cassavetes gave him a piece of advice. He went, Bob, do me a favor. Do yourself a favor. Don't tell anybody that. Put it on your resume. Nobody's seen the movie yet. If they know you're in a major production by a major studio, they're going to think you've got a great future ahead of you and they may hire you for other stuff. Don't judge the film before anybody else has seen it. I had
0: the same conversation with Lawrence Montaigne who played the Canadian in The Great Escape, who also had a fairly small part, but because that film was on his resume, he got a lot of work. There you go. With Steve McQueen and James Garner. Well, we're running, we're running short on time. So the, my last question to both of you is going to be uh, a kind of an esoteric one, but is there a favorite scene for you in yeah. the
1: Dirty Dozen? I'll start with uh, Dwayne. Any scene with Cassavetes is a favorite. I'm sorry, I, I just have to say it. I just loved him so much. I just want to add one more little anecdote. I know I've been going off way too much. I'm sorry, but I became such a fan of this movie over the years that when 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 you know when they first came out with VCRs, the very first VHS tape I bought was *The Dirty Dozen*, and I had a buddy of mine, and we used to watch it all the time together. And I got to the point—I'd say I was about 21, 22 years old around this time—and if neither one of us had anything to do on a Friday or Saturday night, we would figure out that the other person had nothing to do on a Friday, Saturday night by calling up the other one. And usually it was him calling me, going and I would go, all right, come on over, let's watch it. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was like a code. We watched it that often. Sure. All he had to do was hum the theme and we, we'd watch the Dirty Dozen. Steve, what
0: do you think?
2: You know, it's it's how do you pick a favorite scene in a movie full of favorite scenes? Thank you. I I think I think the scenes that I probably enjoyed the most, especially because it was really uh, it was it was they were great scenes from Marvin were the scenes where he was always pleading his case for the mission. Right. You know, I love that scene where he says, you know, anyone of mine is worth, worth. you know, 10 of yours and. I just what's nice about it was it was a lot of heavyweights in the same ring, you know, throwing punches. Um, It's 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 very, very hard to pick one scene, although I think there is that moment where uh, uh, Franco is going, no, sir, we're not going to do this. No, we're not going to do that. (laughs) And then Marvin comes and he talks to Ralph Meeker and he goes, boy, do I love that Franco? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And that's that's one of my favorite lines. But, you know, since we're running out of time, I just got to say this to get off my chest. One of the things that always bothered me, even as a kid, was the fact that the Chateau always seemed to be understaffed in terms of guards. And that every time they needed a cutaway for an action bit, they would introduce some overweight British stuntman, and the movie got criticized for this. That yeah, all the true. Germans were played by these middle-aged, overweight uh, British stuntmen as Germans. And, <laughs> you know, and it was like, okay, we need okay. to kill somebody. All right, let's have one guy come out of the guardhouse. Right. You know, why weren't there 50 guys there? You
1: know, let me well, finish my point. I'm sorry.
2: And, and so, so the thing is, it's got kind of a disjointed quality to it in terms of the action. Uh, And Aldrich is better at staging action than that. And I think my other knock about the movie is um, his longtime editor, Michael Luciano, cut it, I believe. Yes, he did. And the movie's very cutty, you know? And I come from the school where, you know, the best editing is you don't notice the cuts. Now, I know that Aldrich is a provocateur and maybe he wanted that jarring cutting style to get under the fingernails of the audience, but I don't know if it completely worked for him. I just, I felt that by the time they got to the Chateau, the staging of the action in some ways was a little disappointing for me because of just the reality. Well, why would you have a whole Chateau full of generals not guarded by at least a company or two of, of German soldiers? So that, that's one of my knocks on It doesn't mean I still don't love the movie. I love the movie. In fact, I haven't seen yeah. it in a while. I may watch it tonight after we're done. But it was it. one of those things, and every time I watch it, it kind of crosses my mind.
1: I that, have to tell you, amongst military purists, there's a lot of problems in that movie. A lot. In right. One of them being um, you know how they show that when somebody is about to get shot, one of the dozen is being aimed up by, by one of the German snipers, and they sure. use that red scope. Okay, They didn't use that in World War II. That didn't come out until the 60s. Okay, But Aldridge didn't care. He went ahead and used it anyway. There was, you know, whatever somebody, you know, the thing you're saying about how there weren't enough uh, centuries in the movie, it was pretty much Aldridge kind of going, when we need a century, we'll pull one out. If we need a sniper. For well, and it feels it, that way. We'll, yeah, and, we'll do that.
2: And that's but, the problem. It feels yeah, that and, and way.
1: And in, in terms of Aldridge's cutting, he's not very, you know, him and Mucky Luciano, I guess, he was looking over his shoulder. They're not very good in terms of continuity but in terms of the sense of, of, of timing and theme and rhythm, that's where the movie excels. He's really good at building suspense in the way the movie is cut. But well, that, There are a lot of major plot holes. They never explain what Bowren, the Richard Jekyll character, what is he doing on the mission? He's not one of the dozen. What is he doing there? It's never explained. Uh,
2: it's, but it's, here's it's, the it's assumption, in though. Book,
1: but it, I'm sorry?
2: The, my assumption always was that he was there to have Reisman's back just so he doesn't get shot in the back.
1: Right, exactly, which is what is explained in the book, but it's never explained in the movie. There's a whole lot of stuff like that. They never get into the whole thing about Corporal Morgan. There was a whole other thing about, um, oh, let me end with this. One of my favorite things I was able to do when I mentioned the level of exclusivity that I've been doing with the book I've been writing called Killing Generals, okay? Pretty much every living cast member, I got to interview one way or another. I interviewed Donald Sutherland, Ken Hyman, uh, Colin Maitland, Dora Rice, who played, Riser, who played the uh, woman, Kelly Savalas killed. Wolfgang. She's looking for
2: Wolfgang. Wolfgang. Wolfgang.
1: Wolfgang. Wolfgang. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) Wolfgang. I interviewed them all. I got them all. And each of them told me an amazing story. Uh, This book book
0: sounds like a lot of fun, Dwayne. We're going to have a lot of fun with killing generals. I want to say my favorite, I love the ending, the the whole assault on the Chateau, even if there's a low octane number of German sentries, the way it's plotted, the way it's shot, the suspense when they go in, and of course, uh, uh, Lee Marvin speaks no German. Right. And uh, Bronson is there. The suspense factor is off the charts. The I whole agree. concept of how to take out these generals, and and all these officers was just physicality. And of course, once they get get them all locked into that dungeon, how they do it is just just off the charts. And and this has been so enjoyable, guys. I knew that we could spend a good hour talking about this one movie. We probably could do a second hour on any on every element of it, but. I just want to tell the listeners, you've been listening to Saturday Night the Movies. Our guest tonight has been Dwayne Epstein, whose book, Lee Marvin Point Blank, is a legendary book now. His new book, uh, Killing Generals, on the making of this movie is going to be uh, definitely a guarantee on many shelves, especially us. And then, of course, Steve Mitchell, uh, the filmmaker behind King Cohen, has become a terrific documentarian. Steve and I, of course, do a lot of commentary work on film classics primarily uh, war films primarily war films in fact they just told me the other day that we're going to be doing pork chop hill which is another one of my favorites great um on behalf of uh ben shrewsbury our producer the lock 22 network uh thank you for tuning in i'm steve rubin your host Tune in our next broadcast where we're going to be talking about the 40th anniversary of Poltergeist by interviewing Joe Beth Williams, who was one of the leads in that classic uh, classic horror film. Um, everybody, thank you for joining us and good night.